Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, friends. Great to be with you all this morning. Um, thanks to Alex for the invitation, to the warm welcome that I've already received, uh, to the hospitality of this place. I've been here once before uh, with Judy and to the missions committee, so I've met some of you uh, last year, but it's a joy to be back and in worship with you all. As Alex said, I'm the pastor of the Inclusive Collective. Uh, it is a campus ministry, primarily with students from the University of Illinois at Chicago, UIC, but we have folks from a variety of other schools as well, all the way from Elmhurst to Wheaton and several other schools in the city. And we are a mission partner of your church and of the Chicago Presbytery. And so uh, we are doing work with college students uh, uh, down there. And uh, thank you for the ways you already support us through mission giving, through giving to the Presbytery, through your prayers. Uh, also, some of you may know Marilyn Graves, a member of this church who is on our board of directors for the Inclusive Collective. And so uh, we are linked together in a lot of ways, and I'm, I'm grateful for you and your presence uh, here today. As Alex said, one more pitch uh, right after uh, the service in the parlor? Parlor. parlor. Uh, lots of names to keep track of. Narthex, parlor. Uh, in the parlor, uh, we will gather for about a half hour or so, um, and we'll have some sandwiches, light refreshments, as well as I'll talk about more about the Inclusive Collective and share some stories with you about how God is moving uh, in that ministry. So I'd love if you'd come uh, there as well. So friends, now listen to uh, what God may be wanting to say to you this morning uh, through uh, the prophet Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. Shout out! Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast? But you don't see. Why do we humble ourselves, but you don't even notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down your head like a, a, like a bulrush? and to lie in sackcloth and ashes. Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing it shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and the Lord will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of fingers, the speaking of evil. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. 
The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for all people gathered here, for ancient words that still offer us a fresh word today. And so God, in these moments, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, the thoughts of all of us in this place will be pleasing to you, will be acceptable to you, will be connected to who you are and the people you are calling us to become. And God, when they are not, remind us that you are God, not of a few chances, but of innumerable chances, always welcoming us back with open arms to your way. Amen. Some of you, anyone here heard of Brian Stevenson? I see a few hands going up. Okay, great. Brian Stevenson is the author of the book Just Mercy and the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. If you've heard him speak, you may be familiar with the story that he tells about a trip to Germany that he took a few years ago. And he went to Germany, and he began to notice something as he walked around and traveled from place to place. It didn't matter if he was in a large city in an urban area, a small rural village, a tiny town somewhere tucked away. Wherever he was, wherever he went in that country, he noticed that everywhere had a memorial, a monument, a marker of the Holocaust. And so as he began to notice these, these, these monuments that were countless, he asked his German friends about why they have so many. Why everywhere I go in your country is there a marker to this horrific occasion? And his German friends looked at him sort of matter-of-factly. They were in fact surprised by his question because to them it seemed so obvious. Don't you understand, Brian, that if we are going to move forward in a new way and on a new path, if, the, if, us, if we as Germans are going to move forward as a society, then we must first acknowledge the past. If we are wanting to imagine a new tomorrow, we must first deal with what's happened in our past. And Stevenson's mind went immediately back to the U.S. He lives here, and his mind went to this context. And he wondered why our country has so very few monuments to our history with racism. Perhaps one of the reasons that our country is still dealing with and infected by racism is because we haven't dealt with our past in a public, large-scale way. And Stevenson's a lawyer who specializes in overturning death penalty cases, so his imagination went to something very particular about our nation's history of racism, lynching. Between 1877 and 1950, over 4,400 black men, women, and children were murdered by mobs in this country in over 800 counties. And Stevenson thought, somewhere in this country, somewhere there must be a large-scale memorial that marks this terrible event. Somewhere. And he researched and researched and researched, and guess what? Not one existed. And so he began to imagine and dream about what one would look like. And then in April 2018, 
after endless amounts of work, energy, creativity, fundraising, and risk-taking by Stevenson and his team, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened in Montgomery, Alabama, the heart of the American South where the majority of these lynchings took place. On six acres overlooking Montgomery, 800 columns hang. You see it in a picture on the screen. 800 columns hang representing the counties where the lynchings took place and all of the columns are inscribed with the known names of those who were lynched. And inside the museum there are soil samples from the 800 counties where the lynchings took place. And Stevenson said this about the soil. In this soil there is the sweat of the enslaved. In the soil there is the blood of victims of racial violence and lynching. There are tears in this soil. From all who labored under the indignation and humiliation of segregation, but, but, in this soil there is also the opportunity for new life, a chance to grow something hopeful and healing for the future. A chance to grow something hopeful and healing for the future, an opportunity for new life. Friends, Christianity is about the movement from the cross, a place designed to inflict shame and deal death, to resurrection, a powerful new experience that brings new life. And I'm convinced that this claim that we make on Easter, this Easter claim, is not simply one that stuck in the first century that began and ended with Jesus. Rather, I believe that Jesus' movement from the cross to resurrection is a model a blueprint, the naming of a reality that exists and is in fact woven into the fabric of all of creation. Think about it. When we eat plants, they were alive in the ground, they die to feed us and they give us new life. Or think about our bodies. We have 300 million cells that die every single minute in our bodies, but our resilient bodies produce new ones to replace them. Or the seasons. Life flourishes in the summer, begins to wilt in the fall, dies in the winter. As I told the first service, it dies really hard in the winter here <laughs> and is reborn in the spring. Cross to resurrection, death to life is all over the place if we will simply stop and notice it. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice seeks to be caught up in that movement from death to life. It is taking a place where people were literally killed and shamed, and it's transforming them into monuments that amplify the voices of those who were meant to be silenced. The memorial, it exists to make us take a long, hard look at yesterday and today, and the hopes of imagining a new tomorrow. That, y'all, is on the ground movement from death to life. And then there's this Isaiah passage that I read a few moments ago. And in this passage, I believe we find God instructing the Hebrew people on how to move from death to life. And God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And sometimes we think in our current vocabulary, the word prophet sounds almost like a fortune teller, right? Someone who's around a crystal ball, foreseeing the future and telling people what it will be. But for the Hebrew people, prophets were more truth tellers than fortune tellers. 
So they were primarily concerned with then and now, the people in their own time and place, and they believed fervently that if they could speak truth to the people, that they could cause real change to happen. That the truth would cause real change to happen. And so the setting of this passage is likely around the 6th century BCE, and many of the Hebrew people have been living in exile in Babylon. And some of them are starting to trickle their way back into their homeland, but they aren't happy with how things are going. They aren't happy at all. And they, they fasted and they prayed and they sought an answer to their troubles, but they feel dead. And so they cry out to God, God, why do we fast? You don't even seem to look our way. God, why do we humble ourselves? Why do we go to the trouble of humbling, humbling ourselves when you don't even seem to notice how humble we are? And God offers them a response via Isaiah. Well, you ignore the Sabbath. You never let anyone rest. You do fast, but you bicker and fight about it so much that you start swinging fists at one another. You show off your so-called humility, and you parade around with pious faces. Do y'all think that's what I want? When you invite a southerner to preach, God says, y'all. <laughs> do you think that's what I want? And God offers this blistering critique of the way that God's people have been practicing faith. They had strayed from their core. They had forgotten what it means to be God's people. They had forgotten what it means to pursue God's good dream for the world. And God lets them know in no uncertain terms. God can be blunt, friends. God lets them know in no uncertain terms that showy religion full of arrogance was not what God was after. God outlines very clearly the way this faith community had failed, and these folks feel dead. And God said, here, here's the autopsy report. These days, I also hear God giving us a blunt and honest autopsy report. The church is dying, everybody says. And God says, well, let me tell you why. And I hear this autopsy report through countless conversations I have, because week after week after week, I have coffee after coffee after coffee with college students and the Inclusive Collective. And I hear similar stories again and again and again, and some of the most powerful and potent and disturbing conversations I have are about the church. I get the same questions over and over. I'm gay. Why does the church hate me? I have a lot of questions and doubts. Why does the church make me suppress my questions and pretend like they don't exist? I'm passionate about social justice. Why is the church always on the wrong side of history? But I don't just get this autopsy report through personal conversations. Uh, researchers conduct study after study after study, and God can speak through hard data too. So when they conduct these surveys, how do people respond? How do they view the church? Judgmental, boring, hypocritical, anti-LGBTQ, sheltered, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, confusing and exclusive. Great list, right? <laughs> From stories that we read and can tell, studies that we look at, they function as indictments of the American Christian church, and these stories and studies tell us why death runs rampant in the church. They show us why 36% of 18 to 24-year-olds describe their religion as nothing in particular. They show us why over 
100 Christian churches shut their doors and close for good every single year. God has given us the autopsy report. But here's the good news. Are you ready for some good news? Yes. You can talk back. Here's the good news is that God does not stop there. God does not simply give the people the truth and then drop the mic and walk away. No, in Isaiah, we see God instructing the Hebrew people on how to move forward. God instructs them and teaches them how to move from death to life. And God's not just interested in giving them a list of arbitrary rules. No, God reminds them what it looks like to live into, to lean into God's dream for the world. God says, work for justice. Share your food with the hungry. Give away your clothes. Invite the homeless into your home. Give yourselves to the down and out. Then, then your lives will begin to light up the darkness. Your lives, they'll be full and meaningful. You'll be like a well-watered garden or a spring that never runs dry. You'll be known as those who can fix anything restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, you'll be known as those who can make the community pulse with life again. And so Isaiah 58, it begins with this heavy-handed critique regarding who the people are. But it ends, friends, with this heavy dose of hope regarding who the people can be. And God reminds them that they are, they are way more, they are worth way more and can do way more than their worst failures. They're not stuck. And with God's help, they can be about something new, something different. And they won't just let go of old ways of doing things. No, they will also embrace new ways of doing things. As agents of God's transformation, they will be people who can rebuild and renovate and create something different. They can awaken new possibilities and they can move from death to life in the same way i hear god calling us you and me to move from death to life we've seen the autopsy report we have a pretty clear picture of the church's failures but here's my confession to you is that my temptation in this moment can be to point my finger at other christians and blame them for the mess we're in my temptation can be to say, you know, if that preacher wasn't on TV spouting hate, people wouldn't hate the church so much. If that person didn't write that book that was so oppressive and full of bigotry, people wouldn't hate the church so much. But here's the deal, is that that simply will not suffice. And I'm learning more and more that that simply won't suffice. Because the best way to offer an alternative to the gospel of hate is to grab the microphone and find creative and risk-taking and compelling ways to unashamedly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that promises deep and vibrant connection to God, true justice, equity, and inclusion, and the flourishing of all people and all creation. So it's time that we ask God to propel us forward, to move us forward, to help the church in all of its many diverse forms become a relevant and creative force in society, it's time that we ask God to simply do this. Help us become a church that looks more and more like Jesus. Like the Hebrew people from Isaiah, God desires to use us to be people who rebuild and renovate and make the community pulse with life again. Don't we want to be a part of that? Don't we want to be a part of that movement? Amen, we do.
but we can't rebuild and renovate and create if we only spend our time critiquing. It's easy to critique other churches and blame them for all of our problems. And lamenting and confessing is important. To, to lament and confess the sins of the church, they are important Christian practices. But another important Christian practice is the full process of repentance. And repentance doesn't just mean lamenting and confessing. Repentance also means moving in a new direction. Doing something fresh. So we must wrestle with the question is, how do we not only let go of old ways, but how do we embrace new ways? How do we do, as Michelangelo says, critique by creating? Critique by creating, or as Richard Rohr says, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. How do we go from getting it wrong to getting it right? How do we help the church become more and more like Jesus? How do we move from death to life? But here's the truth. Moving from death to life is no easy, simple task that we can follow five steps and do it by next week. Moving from death to life requires God's help and it requires us to embrace courage, to take risks, to disrupt the status quo and to do things in ways we've never done them before, perhaps in ways we've never dreamed of before. Clarence Jordan grew up in Georgia in the 1920s. And from a young age, and during his teenage years, racism and poverty in his area began to really bother him. He was Christian, he would read his Bible and read the Gospels and read the stories of Jesus, and he just thought, the rampant poverty and racism in my hometown does not align with the person of Jesus. And that holy discomfort with injustice, it never went away. But Clarence graduated high school and then went to the University of Georgia and studied agriculture. Then he went to seminary, stayed there for several years and got his PhD in New Testament, was seen as an emerging scholar and all the top seminaries across the country wanted to hire him. Come work for us, Clarence. Tenure track positions, come work for us. And he said, no, no, no. And he said no because he and his wife Florence felt called by God to do something different. They felt called by God to move to their hometown in America's Georgia and start an interracial Christian farming community called Koinonia Farm. It's a picture on the screen. In the midst of a racist society, the Jordans dreamed of a place where white and black folks could live and work and play as family. So think about that for a moment. An interracial farm in a tiny rural town in South Georgia in 1942. This was quite risky, to say the least. But Jordan was convinced that racism was not just bad. He was convinced that it was a slap to God's very face. Because God dreams of a place where people are united and where justice reigns. And so the Jordans described Quinonia as this. A demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. A demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. A place where God's dream became reality in real time, in real ways, with real people on real land. And at the beginning, the people of America, they didn't bother Quinonia much. They just said, those people are real weird. Let them do their thing. But they didn't bother them. 
But then, uh, as the civil rights movement ramped up in this country and things got hot, people started boycotting the farm, and then the KKK resorted to violent attacks. And at the height of these attacks, Clarence decided he needed to get legal representation. The legal system was obviously misguided in lots of ways in those, those days, but he said, well, maybe at least something could be done. And so he went to his brother Robert, and Robert happened to be a high-powered, high-capacity lawyer in town. And so he went to Robert, and he said, Robert, I need you to be Quinania's lawyer. And Robert said, Clarence, you know I can't do that. You know I have political aspirations. I'm going to run for office soon. You know I have all these friends I need to stay connected to. You know I can't be seen as representing Koinonia and you. You know I can't do that. If I do that, I might lose my house. I might lose my job. I might lose everything I've got. And Clarence said, well, Robert, we might lose everything too. And Robert said, it's different for you, Clarence. It's different for you. And Clarence said, why is it different for me? When we were young boys growing up in that Baptist church, that little Baptist church, we walked the aisle of that church one Sunday, and the preacher asked us a question. And the preacher said, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And what did you say, Robert? What did you say when the preacher asked that? And Robert said, well, I follow Jesus, Clarence, up to a point. Up to a point. And Clarence said, might that point by any chance be the cross? And he said, well, I, I follow him to the cross. But I'm not getting on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified, Clarence. Are you crazy? And Clarence, known for his bite with words, said, well then, my brother Robert, this is what I need you to do. You still go to church every Sunday? Oh, of course, I go to church every Sunday. Then what I need you to do is this. Next Sunday... I want you to walk down the aisle of that church you belong to. I want you to stand up in front of the whole congregation. And I want you to say, Dear church, my name is Robert Jordan, and I am an admirer of Jesus, but I am not a disciple of Jesus. I admire Jesus, but I do not follow Jesus. Friends, as we imagine new paths forward for the church, perhaps that is a question that all of us should wrestle with. Are we admirers of Jesus who like to, to see Jesus from a safe distance? Or are we disciples of Jesus who are willing to put everything on the line to follow in the way of the one we call our Lord? If we choose discipleship, if we choose to follow with all we've got, I believe that we can partner with God to transform the church and more so to transform our world which is in desperate need of healing and hope and justice. God is inviting us to embrace courage, to take risks, to be disciples, to critique by creating, to move from death to life. Yes, God is inviting us. The only question you have to answer is this. Are you in? Amen. Thanks for listening.
And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.